Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke as we return back to the exposition of Luke's Gospel and that to chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Hear now God's holy word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him out down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray together. We ask now that you would direct our minds and our thoughts to the preaching of your written word. By your spirit, inscribe it unto our hearts that we may obey it. By your Spirit, renew our minds that we may be transformed by it. Grow us, we pray, in greater love and appreciation for our Savior as we hear His voice in Holy Scripture. Turn any who are deaf to hearing, any who are blind to seeing. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. For what we preach is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. The Apostle Paul wants us to know something about the task of preaching, about what ought to be the aim of every preacher who delivers a sermon. It is to preach Christ and not oneself. This is the cardinal rule of preaching, that a sermon be filled not with personal stories or personal experiences or even personal insights, but that it be full of Christ. 
It says the great Baptist said, He must increase and I must decrease. Yet the greatest preacher to ever stand behind a pulpit, as it were, could only preach himself. All of his sermons were self-centered. His introduction all the way through to his application drew those who were listening to his own work, to his own person. It was all personal. And they were the best sermons ever recorded. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he said, God had only one son and he made him a preacher. And the greatest preacher the world has ever known, he was. For to no such preacher can it be said that he had eyes like a flame of fire whose voice was like the roar of many waters. He preached with divine power, holy purity. Well, who is this preacher? And what does he have to say about himself? Well, as we enter back into the Gospel of Luke, beloved, what could be better than to sit at the feet of our Savior and to hear Him preach? And that concerning Himself. This is what He did at the synagogue in Nazareth where He preached the Gospel according to Jesus. Now notice that Jesus' sermon here, it stands out. And it stands out because He delivered this sermon in the very place in which He was raised. It was a homecoming for Jesus. But I think what's really surprising for us is that after the close of his sermon, the people of his own hometown wanted to throw him off of a cliff to fall to his death. You see, that's not what usually takes place after a closing prayer and benediction. I don't think that's ever happened to me or to Pastor Dave. Maybe Pastor Eric. I'm just kidding. But this was an attempt to execute the preacher. They had known him ever since he was a little boy. He had attended the synagogue each and every week with his parents. Yet they now wanted to kill him. What could Jesus have said that had so offended them, that had so angered them, that they now wanted to destroy him? Listen to what John tells us in the beginning of his Gospel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. What Luke wants to show us here in chapter 4 is that very thing, but in visual form. And it all takes place in Nazareth, the home of our Lord. Our passage here in Luke can be divided or broken up into four, four movements, four movements by the Lord Jesus which will serve as our, as our outline this afternoon, firstly, we see that Jesus entered into His hometown. He entered into His hometown. And then secondly, He went into the synagogue and He read Scripture. And then thirdly, He expounded Scripture. And lastly, He departed from the town of Nazareth. And having read through the passage, you can easily see those very movements of the Lord there in Luke. Well, we begin with the first movement, and it's that Jesus entered into his hometown. When Jesus arrived at the town of Nazareth, we find that he had not come directly from the wilderness. Now, it's been some time since we were in Luke, but let me remind you from the beginning of chapter 4 here that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness after having fasted 40 days where the devil came and he tested him. 
But for all all of his efforts, Jesus, he did not waver. Jesus did not break nor bend, but Jesus, he remained faithful. And where Adam, the Son of God, failed and he fell, Jesus, the Son of God, he perfectly obeyed. And where Israel grumbled and he contended against God in the desert, Jesus trusted in his Father. And there he proved that he is the better Adam. He is the true Israel. And when he exited the wilderness, he didn't do so limping or deplete with power or wounded from his fight from the devil like he had barely made it out of the wilderness. No. Notice that Luke tells us in chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. You see, if we look back at Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we're told that prior to entering into the wilderness, that Jesus was full, full of the Holy Spirit. And after battling the ancient foe with no food in his stomach, he returned from that arena in the power of the Spirit. It's because, as he said, man does not live on bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus lived in dependence, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. It was the secret of our Savior's life. Jesus, he didn't operate self-sufficiently. He didn't live by his own strength, but depended upon, relied upon the Holy Spirit. And so when he came to Nazareth, He did so in the power of the Spirit in order to preach in the power of the Spirit. And you see, Christian, it's very important that we have a quick word of application here from the very outset. If the divine and holy and eternal Son of God lived in such a manner, how can we ever think that we can live apart from the power of the Holy Spirit? It's impossible. It cannot be done. Yet so many people try. And they ask and they question as to why there isn't any spiritual growth. Why there isn't any spiritual fruit. Why there isn't any spiritual progress in their lives. Well, what should we expect? We shouldn't be surprised if our lives are stagnant and callous and defeated and depressed. You know, if you've been reading with the church through the yearly Bible reading plan, which I encourage you to do so, We read Zechariah chapter 4 this week. The word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You see, that's the only way to live. By the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit to come and to commune with God. By the Spirit to draw near to God. By the Spirit to mature in greater faithfulness to God, by the Spirit to be transformed closer into the image of His Son. And you see, the question is, are you living in dependence upon Him? Are you relying upon the Holy Spirit? Are you feeding upon Christ regularly in His Word to fill your soul? Are you by the Spirit living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? And that to feed your mind and to fill your soul that you might know His will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Are you by the Spirit coming to God in prayer? Asking to expose all the sinful vices that have taken root in your heart, looking to Christ to mend it. Are you by the Spirit earnestly seeking the Lord to change you, 
and to grow you. And you see, apart from the Spirit, it will never happen. Why? It's because that's how Jesus lived. In each and every moment, Jesus depended upon the Holy Spirit. And you see, then it's, that, that speaks to our pride. And that speaks to our arrogance. And that speaks to our senselessness to think that we can live differently than the Savior. You see, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And we find that He went to various towns and cities within that northern area of Israel before coming to Nazareth. Look at verse 14. And a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. As Jesus went from synagogue to synagogue, He started to become somewhat of a small town celebrity. He got famous. He was gaining recognition. People were being drawn by His teaching and His preaching. And He wasn't like the other preachers saying, Rabbi this and Rabbi that, but He preached with authority. Look down in verse 32 in chapter 4. It says that they were astonished at His teaching for His Word possessed authority. And so the area around the Galilee was now praising Him, glorifying Him. And so you can imagine, church, that when He came into His own synagogue, into His own church, in His own hometown, expectations were high. They were fever pitch. And it wasn't just that His reputation of preaching was the talk of the town here. But this man was able to do something that they had never seen. He could actually do miracles. And that was something else. The synagogue here, they were, they were able to get preachers every Sabbath day, but never a miracle worker. So in the small town of Nazareth, it was going to be, it was going to be some kind of special service. Notice what's more is the fact that this was Joseph's son. They knew him. They had watched him grow up. They were well acquainted with his family. And so that synagogue was jam-packed as people filled the sanctuary. There was an expectation. What will he say? What will he do? What kind of special sign will he perform? What spectacular miracle will he show us? And so the anticipation was high. Because you see, Nazareth, they didn't really have a good track record of good preachers. The common saying regarding the town was actually very true. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They didn't get too many good preachers coming out of Nazareth. And you see, this local preacher who was to come, he didn't really quite fit the picture either. He didn't really have the look of a preacher. He didn't look like John the Baptist who had a certain prophetic style to his clothing. He wandered around the wilderness, you'll remember, in his camel shirt. And he had a diet consisting of bugs. But this man, this preacher, he wasn't like that. Yet it was John the Baptist and all of his preaching. And that he pointed to Jesus telling the people, you need to really listen to him. There is a preacher whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. And so the people thought Jesus was going to come. And put on a special performance. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Notice secondly, Jesus went into the synagogue and he read Scripture. Luke goes on here in verse 16. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. 
Notice Jesus had a pattern. Not only did He live by the Spirit, but it was His ongoing practice to be in the Lord's house each and every week. Gathering with the people of God was a priority of the Lord's. Even the Lord. And there's something to be said here. That the Son of God subjected Himself to preaching that was vastly inferior to His. There was no comparison, no doubt. But Jesus had to sit there and He had to listen to bad preaching. Yet it was God's Word. And Jesus submitted Himself to that preaching every Sabbath day for the whole of His life. Now the service there in the synagogue, a little bit similar to ours, would have started with the singing of psalms. And the singing would have been followed by a recitation of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then came the reading of Scripture. And so the worship service was centered around Scripture. And the synagogue attendant would have taken the scroll out of its container, normally the Torah, and would have handed it to the preacher, who then carefully unrolled the scroll to the passage in which he was to teach. And then he stood for the reading of God's Word. And when the passage of Scripture was read before the congregation, he then sat down on a chair situated upon a raised platform to preach. That's the one thing we don't do here. We don't sit down when we preach. But in this particular service, the worship attendant took out not the Torah scroll, but the Isaiah scroll and handed it to Jesus. And Jesus unrolled the scroll. And Luke says, verse 17, that He found the place where it was written. In other words, Jesus knew exactly where in the Word He wanted to go and what He wanted to say. And He turned to Isaiah chapter 61 and to its first two verses. And all the people in the church that morning would have been very familiar with that passage. It's because Isaiah chapter 61 and the chapters surrounding it lied at the very heart of every Jew. It was the portion of Scripture that spoke of the triumph of the restoration of Israel, of the future glory of Israel, and coming back to the land from exile. This is the context in which Isaiah was written when Israel would be taken into captivity into Babylon. But for the Jews there inside of that synagogue in Nazareth, they had come back to the land. Hundreds of years had passed since they had come back. They were already living in the land. But every Jew knew that something was just not right. What was not right? There was no king from the line of David, ruling and reigning upon the throne. Pagan worshipers of false deities were in charge of their country. The Romans were in power. Dirty, uncircumcised Gentiles were in control of the land. And every Jewish person was yearning for the day when everything was to be put right. Well, Jesus decided to read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, the Jewish people, they understood very fully 
that those were the words of the Messiah and the ministry in which He would bring to His people. And they longed for the One who was to come, who knew the needs of His people, who would build up His people, who would restore His people, who would set His people free from their bondage. And as Jesus read that passage, the people inside that synagogue waited to see what He would say. Verse 20, And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And He sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. You see, up to this point, everything was going as planned in the worship service. They enjoyed the worship service. They liked the music. They appreciated the reading, especially because it was a Nazarene who had read the Scriptures in his Galilean accent. They liked that. But no one was prepared for what Jesus was going to say next. In which we come to the next movement in our passage. Thirdly, Jesus expounded Scripture. Jesus provided for those in the synagogue the true interpretation of that word. Verse 21. And He began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It was the most staggering thing these people had ever heard. The Jews had just listened to God's sacred promise in God's sacred book. And here was this hometown boy, now grown up, telling them, I am the fulfillment of that promise. God's very promise is realized in me. Jesus says, I am that person. I am the Messiah. I am God's holy and anointed. I am that salvation. And you can just feel the drama building in that synagogue. And when the people heard Him say that the voice of divine authority was unmistakable and the power in which He said it was inescapable. And we know that because their, their initial reaction was to say yes. It's because notice that Luke tells us in verse 22 that all spoke well of Him and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth. Yes, this is God speaking. But then notice that immediately following, another reaction sets in. Is not this Joseph's son? I get that he's a great preacher and he's given to us this groundbreaking claim, but is not this Joseph's son? I know where he was born. I know who his parents are. I've watched him grow up. Is not this Joseph's son. This is what he really needs to do. He needs to perform a sign. He needs to do something spectacular. Let's see a sign. And at this point, Jesus, you see, he knows what is exactly going on in their minds. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What was the proverb? You claim to give deliverance to the poor and to the blind and to the captive. Give us proof. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Do in your hometown what you've been doing elsewhere. 
If you are the Messiah, if you are the Son of God, if you are the fulfillment of God's promise, give us a sign. And beloved, notice we heard these very words in the same chapter here in Luke chapter 4. Words that came from the devil. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Create a sensation. Do something miraculous. Give us a sign. And you see, that particular temptation came to the Lord Jesus time and time and time again. John chapter 6, verse 30. What sign will you do so that we may believe in you? What work do you perform? And you see, Jesus knew a sign wouldn't have made an ounce of a difference. It would never have persuaded them. And here's the thing, they knew He could do signs. Some of them had seen Him do it from the surrounding cities and the country, which is to say that even those who were hardened with sin knew that He could do miracles. The demons knew His power, and the demons knew who He was. We know that You are the Holy One of God, they confessed. It wasn't His miraculous ability that they doubted, you see. It was His messianic authority that they rejected. That was the issue that was going on inside of their hearts. Simply, they refused and they rejected Him. And you see, often it is the case with us. Our problem is not that we don't believe God's Word to be His Word. We do. Our trouble is that we reject it. We reject it by not doing it. What we have here in Luke is a common reaction to the Word of God within those who come to the synagogue. A submission to the Word of God. A surrender to the Word of Christ. An obedience to the claims of God and His Word. And it's that in which people in the church often reject. That's where we have our problem. How many times have we come to the end of the service, to the time of the benediction, and we felt the power of the preached Word, and we said to ourselves, surely God is speaking to me. But then just a few moments later, we turn it off. You see, it's not enough to be astonished at the preaching. It is never enough to even feel that God is speaking. But it is a submission to the Word of God, not amazement at how it's preached, which matters. You see, you and I come under the ministry of the Word week by week, not to be marveled, not to be in awe, not to hear the preacher wax eloquent, but to come and to submit and to obey the Word of God. That's why we come. And the people of Nazareth crammed into that synagogue and they were astonished, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to be shown something spectacular. It wasn't enough to be shown something miraculous. And sometimes, that's often what we're looking for disregarding our own obedience. And beloved, may that Nazarene disposition never be true in us. But let me now ask this question. What is it that made these Nazarenes murderous? Notice Jesus in His sermon. 
begins to tell some stories. Jesus tells stories in His sermons. Stories about two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. The first comes from 1 Kings 17. And Jesus says in verse 25 here in Luke 4, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now what story is Jesus here providing? One thing we have to know is that Nazareth was situated in the northern part of Israel. And historically, the northern part of Israel, or the northern kingdom, was characterized by unbelief. Which is why God sent the northern kingdom of Israel into exile, never to return. And what Jesus is saying in this story is that there used to be a lot of widows in these parts of Israel to the Nazarenes in the days of Elijah. And God didn't send His prophet to raise any of their sons back to life except one. Elijah was sent of all the women, of all the widows, to the house of a pagan widow in Sidon to stay in her house and to raise her boy from the dead. Why? Why didn't God raise the sons of those widows who lived in these parts from the dead? Why didn't God do a miraculous work for the Israelite widows? And the answer is because of unbelief. It's because of unbelief. And the same lesson was given when Elisha was sent again to these same parts of Israel in 2 Kings 7, when there were many lepers in the area. And of all the lepers, he didn't heal a single one of them except a heathen, a Syrian commander by the name of Naaman in the Jordan. Again, why cleanse the pagan leper? It's because all the Jewish ones were hardened with unbelief. And so God did no miracle for them. Jesus is essentially saying to these Jews in the synagogue here in Nazareth, 800 years and nothing has changed. You're just like your forebears before you. God sent His anointed. God sent His prophet. God sent His word. And it was not enough. You wanted to see a miracle, but just like the Israel of old, in these very same parts, I'm not going to give it to you. And that because of your unbelief. When Mark gives his account of Jesus' rejection here at Nazareth, he says in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Well, why? Why could Jesus do no miracles there? And it says there, because of their unbelief. But what angered these Jews was this. That God had sent His prophet to the Sidonian widow. To the Syrian leper. And they got the message. That this salvation wasn't for them. Jesus says, there's not going to be anything done for you here because you have hardened your hearts and you believe not my words. And these hometown Jews, rather than being convicted of their sins in which Jesus had just uncovered, their wonder and their amazement 
had turned to seething anger. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You see, his welcoming was about to take a completely different turn. Do you see what is taking place here? Do you see it, church? They refused to admit and acknowledge what their hearts were truly like. They weren't willing to deal with their sins and grapple with their unbelief. They shut out the convicting word of the Holy Spirit to show them their sins. Instead, they chose to get rid of the problem. And the problem was not their sin, but the problem was Jesus. And you see here, here's the danger. Here's the danger of those who on the outside look very much like those here in the synagogue in Nazareth. Never would we imagine grabbing Jesus, taking Him to the outskirts of town to throw Him off of a cliff. We would never dare to do something like that. But the reality of the situation is this. He is really here. And He is really speaking to us. And He has entered into the synagogue. And He has entered into our church. And if Jesus is intruding into your heart and showing you your sins and you reject His conviction, you're no different from the Nazarene crowd that tried to kill Him. You see, He's come to our church with a word. And that word is this. He's come to proclaim good news to the poor. Now don't be confused. Those words were revolutionary not because He came to give an earthly deliverance or an earthly salvation. Jesus did not come to give a salvation that dies when you die, which we often like to live for. What Jesus gives to us in this sermon with crystal clarity is what the Gospel is and what the Gospel is not. He's come to proclaim good news, Gospel news to the poor. And that doesn't mean a higher standard of living. Not a social revolution, but a spiritual salvation. He's come to proclaim liberty to the captives and to those who are oppressed. He's come to recover sight to the blind. And notice, notice that when Jesus said that, He said this, He said this, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled. Now think about this. The people of Nazareth They didn't see any prison doors open. They didn't see any people set free. They didn't observe any blind people begin to see what was being fulfilled. The gospel of God's salvation. And here He came, Jesus came to Nazareth to proclaim it. Notice in the Scripture reading here in Isaiah chapter 61, Three times he read in Isaiah that he has been anointed. He anointed me to proclaim. He came to preach the message of salvation and redemption. Which is why Jesus said today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Because they heard it. That they might hear the gospel. That they might look at their sinful condition. Their downtrodden situation their spiritual poverty and their spiritual blindness to recognize their sin before God Almighty and to look to His anointed Jesus the Nazarene. You see, God had literally sent to the people of Nazareth a Savior in their likeness. 
He was from them. He was from Nazareth. He was a Nazarene. And what is the gospel? That God has sent to us a Savior in our likeness. That the Son of God would put on flesh and that to live in our place. And yes, we know that at the end of the story here, that Jesus escapes from death, but only because Jesus came to pursue death. And death He pursued on the cross, where for the joy set before Him, He endured the very wrath of God. He died and He rose again. Elijah raised a widow's son, but God raised His Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And He now preaches within our midst, calling us to look to Him, to repent of our sins, and to trust in Him. Non-Christian, can I ask you this? Do you feel yourself in bondage? Do you feel that? Do you feel like you're held captive? Captive by something. And it seems like you can't shake it. It's because you are overpowered and dominated by guilt and sin. There is no greater captivity than the bondage to sin. You see, it imprisons the mind. It enslaves the heart. It incarcerates the soul, which is why you feel the way that you feel. Let me tell you this, that Jesus came to set you free. Freedom from guilt and to offer the forgiveness of sins. Charles Wesley said this in a, in a very famous hymn, that he breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. You see, it means a lot that Jesus stepped into that synagogue to preach the gospel. Which means we need to hear the gospel. Which means there are some who are here who are poor or held captive who need to be set free. The synagogue attending Jews in Nazareth, they were all about appearances. They are all about appearances. About looking better than they really were. Let me ask you, what about yourself? And this goes for everyone. Are you about appearances? I would say come to Him. Come to Him while there is still time. Come to Him while there is still time. And I say that because Notice in this story, Jesus eventually, He went away. Notice fourthly, and we close here. Jesus departed from the town of Nazareth. Verse 29, and we'll close with this. And they rose up and drove Him out of the town and brought Him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw Him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, He went away. You know, the most jarring thing here, I believe, is not that they tried to throw him off the cliff. They tried to kill him. But that he went away. As far as we know in the Gospel of Luke, this was the last time that Jesus ever appeared in Nazareth. The last time. This was the place in which he grew up. This was his hometown. 
This is where his family lived. And he never appeared again in Nazareth. He went away and never returned. That's the most devastating thing. To have Jesus never to come back. I say, hear him calling and come to him before your heart hardens to the point that he never comes back. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, you have searched us in the holy mirror of your word and much has been revealed. Would we not refuse the conviction of your spirit but in humble heart of contrition, confess our sins in which we have acted in unbelief. Have mercy on us, O God. And may we turn and look to the One who has redeemed us, who has saved us, who has shed His own blood for us. And assure us that for those who have come to Him, that all our sins have been taken away. And we pray for any here, yet hardened in their hearts, that they would come to You before you depart away. We thank you for not only saving us, but that you have promised never to leave nor forsake us, but to always be with us forever now and to eternity. We praise you, Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.